Moses and Aaron have just thrown a wooden staff at the feet of Egypt's king, and the staff has transformed into a living, breathing snake. Pharaoh's own magicians have replicated this magic show, and even when the brother's snake gobbles up all the others, the king remains unmoved. However, God appears to have everything under control. Unbeknownst to Pharaoh, he has an arsenal of weaponry which is set to utterly crush the most powerful nation in the ancient world. God's choice of weapon against Pharaoh is a series of plagues which will ravage his country, its livestock and its people. Before he unleashes hell, he acknowledges to Moses that Pharaoh is a stubborn leader and suggests that he meet Egypt's king on the banks of the Nile where he likes to take a dip is to take Aaron's miracle staff tell Pharaoh that the God of the Hebrews has sent him to ask permission for his people and worship in the desert. Till now, Pharaoh has resolutely refused this request and so God is about to let him know exactly who is in charge here. This is to tell the great man that he will touch the waters of the Nile with his staff and they will become blood. Fish will die, the river will stink and no one will be able to drink its water. Aaron is then to take the staff and stretch his arm over the river, the canals that lead from it, as well as the ponds and reservoirs. The water in Egypt, the water held in cups and bowls, will become blood. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, Episode 17, Finger of God. in season two of Holy Bible, which takes us through the book of Exodus, the Bible's second book. If you're new to the podcast, you may notice that there is no obvious conversion agenda. That's because there are plenty of podcasts out there that will either sell or attempt to disprove Christianity, but very few that focus on telling the story. This listeners is the niche that Holy Bible slots into. To make this podcast, I depend on the fabulous Zondervan NIV Study Bible, UK edition. Said it's time to see exactly what kind of a mess Pharaoh has got himself into. Moses and Aaron follow through with everything that God tells them, and Egypt's water turns into a bloody, stinking mess. Fish die, and there's nothing to drink. Magicians have their work cut out, but manage to replicate the miracle by what Exodus refers to as their secret arts. What it doesn't explain is how these wizards find any non-contaminated water on which to perform these arts. Like rational explanations for biblical miracles have suggested that the red colour of the water might have been caused by a population explosion of dinoflagellate algae, known as algal bloom. Bloom is also known as a red tide, which, though catchy, is still not quite as rock and roll as actual blood. Meanwhile, Pharaoh returns to his palace, hard-hearted and unimpressed as ever, as resourceful Egyptian engineers dig channels alongside the Nile so that the people can drink. Week passes, and Moses is sent back again to Pharaoh to ask if his people can be released in order to worship their god. This time is that a plague of frogs will be unleashed on his country. They will team with them, they will come into Pharaoh's palace, into his bedroom and onto his bed. 
Fishel's houses will also be overrun and the frogs will climb into ovens, feeding troughs and even crawl over people's bodies. God's instruction, Aaron raises his staff and sets this horror scenario in motion. Crawl over everything, but the court magicians have not run out of tricks themselves. Do know a secret way of infesting a nation with amphibians, but finally Pharaoh snaps. Is enough, and he decides to call time on the brothers and their deity. If he can persuade God to end this grotesque plague, then he will consent to let the Israelites make their sacrifices in the desert. It's a genuine breakthrough, and Moses asks Pharaoh when an appropriate time would be to pray to God to remove the frogs from Egypt's houses. He suggests the following day, and Moses promises that only the frogs that belong in the Nile will remain. What happens, Pharaoh will know that there is no one like the God of the Israelites. Job well done, and Moses and Aaron can be forgiven for feeling euphoric that this seemingly impossible task has gone so smoothly. Just three miracles, Pharaoh is convinced of the power of their God. Pointed time, Moses cries out to God to end the invasion of frogs, and immediately the animals die die in rotting heaps across the country. Where Pharaoh is concerned, a problem gone is a problem forgotten, and now that his country is back up and running, he sees no reason to honour his promises. The only thing that might change his mind is another plague. For his next dark miracle, God doesn't even bother threatening Pharaoh. Aaron's staff goes up, and when it comes down, disaster strikes Egypt. Sooner does wood strike earth, then clouds of tiny flying insects begin crawling over every animal and human in the country. Time, the magicians are out of aces, and they warn their king that what they are seeing is the finger of God. Remains resolutely unimpressed and clearly needs more convincing. Moses is sent to Pharaoh with a message. Confront him early the next morning as he goes to bathe and order him to let his people go so that they can worship him. King fails to comply, an infestation of flies will swarm across the nation, Egypt's houses, and crawling across the land. Though that there is a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's, no flies will bother the region of Goshen, where most of the Israelites are living. Assumption is that Pharaoh ignores the warning, and at the appointed time, swarms of flies pour into the houses of the king and his officials. In some kind of feeding frenzy, insects ruin the land, and the destruction is so great that Pharaoh has a change of heart. Is granted, and the Israelites can finally go and worship their god. However, they must remain in Egypt, he says. Moses objects. He knows that the sacrifices of Hebrews are an insult to Egyptian sensibilities and that the locals may pick up rocks and hurl them at the worshippers. His people need to undertake a three-day journey into the desert to perform the festival properly, he says. Pharaoh agrees on the condition that they don't stray too far and he asks Moses to pray for him, no doubt to send the flies away agrees to intervene with God as soon as he has left Pharaoh and promises that the plague will end the following day. 
as a condition too. The king must not renege on the deal. The statement is a loaded one. By now, Pharaoh knows the consequences of refusing to honour the brother's wishes. He is on his own again. Moses prays to God and Exodus describes how the flies dissipate. However, Pharaoh appears to be in some kind of self-destructive freefall and decides that he isn't going to release the Israelites after all. He returns to Pharaoh with an ultimatum from God. He continues to hold the Israelites in Egypt. God will bring down a plague on horses, cattle, donkeys, goats and sheep. All Egypt's flocks and herds will be afflicted and only those animals belonging to God's people will remain unaffected. Plague will land the next day, God promises, and as Pharaoh remains incalcitrant, Egypt's livestock dies in the attack. Pharaoh investigates to see if the Israelites' herds have been struck down along with the other animals. He finds that they are all still in good health, possibly suffering from some kind of psychosis which prevents him from seeing clearly what is best for his country. Egypt's king continues as if on rails. As far as he is concerned, his enslaved immigrant workforce is going nowhere. On God's instruction, Moses is to grab a handful of soot from a furnace and fling it into the air. God promises that the soot will become fine dust and wherever it settles on people or animals, they will break out in boils. Standing before Pharaoh with his brother by his side, Moses throws up his handful of soot and unleashes the sixth plague on Egypt. Now Pharaoh's cohort of magicians can't even stand because their skin is so affected, let alone attempt to replicate the miracle. This time it's no longer a case of Pharaoh being in denial. God appears to have had enough of this king and is now simply punishing him and his nation. Exodus describes how God hardens Pharaoh's heart for him, which is why he refuses to see sense and change his mind. Yet again, Moses is told by God to get up early and confront this renegade monarch and demand the people's release so they can worship him. If Pharaoh refuses, God promises that he will see the full force of his plagues and be convinced that there is no one on earth like God. Moses is to tell the king that God could easily have wiped both him and his people off the face of the planet by now. God explains that this is actually Pharaoh's purpose. God has raised him up specifically so that the people can see God's power in action. For continuing to oppress the Israelites, God promises to send the worst hailstorm that Egypt has ever experienced. Pharaoh is to order everyone to bring their animals under cover because anything left exposed in the fields will die. Some of Pharaoh's officials hurry to bring their slaves and livestock out of harm's way, but some skeptics ignore the warning and leave their people and animals to face the wrath of God as it falls from the sky. God gives the signal and Moses raises his staff to the heavens. Thunder rolls and forks of lightning strike the ground while hail rains down. It's easy to see how Tolkien might have been inspired by this stick-wielding old man commanding the elements when creating the character of Gandalf. Exodus describes it as the worst storm ever experienced by Egypt. Every plant is beaten down and every tree stripped. 
Some believe that the hail might be the aftermath of the eruption of the Greek island of Santorini in 3500 BC, where ash mixed with a thunderstorm might have created a dramatic fire and hailstorm. Thanks to its shield of invincibility, Goshen remains untouched. This time, Pharaoh appears to have had a genuine change of heart. With his nation in ruins, he acknowledges that he has behaved appallingly and that God is right to punish him and his people. He begs Moses and Aaron to make it end. The power of God is too much. They and their people are free to go. Moses promises that he will intervene with God as soon as he has left the city. The storm will end as a sign that God is in control of the earth, he says. However, God is now certain that neither he nor his power mean anything to Pharaoh or his cronies. Incredibly, all is not yet lost for Egypt's economy. The flax and barley have been destroyed, but the wheat and spelt survive as they ripen later in the year. As promised, Moses leaves Pharaoh, spreads his hands towards the sky, and the storm ends. Still, no sooner do the hail and rain stop falling than Pharaoh and his hangers-on are back to their old ways. Just as God suspected, the Israelites are going nowhere. From now on, the emphasis has shifted. Changing Pharaoh's mind is no longer the sole purpose of the plagues. These acts of God are also for the benefit of the Israelites so that they and their children see firsthand what God is capable of. God explains to Moses that he has hardened the hearts of Pharaoh and his officials for the benefit of his own people. They can now tell their children and grandchildren what they have seen God do. Moses then takes Aaron with him back to Pharaoh and passes on a new message from God. He asks how long he will refuse to humble himself before someone who is vastly more powerful, before telling him yet again to let God's people go so that they can worship him. If not... God will send a plague of locusts to tear apart what is left of Egypt's fields. This will not be a typical swarm, Moses promises. The insects will fill the houses of Pharaoh and his fellow leaders. They will completely cover the land and devour everything that has been left alive after the hail. Even the trees will be stripped of leaves. Moses assures Egypt's rulers that locusts will fill their homes and that no swarm of this scale has ever been witnessed in Egypt's history. Unwilling to bring total destruction on their country, Pharaoh's officials intervene. Possibly sensing that their king's ego has got the better of him, they urge him to let the Israelites have what they want. If they don't, their country will be ruined, they tell him. Again, Pharaoh seems prepared to do business. He asks how many people need to go into the desert to worship God. The answer is everyone, plus all the animals, as they are all needed to celebrate the festival. Pharaoh is convinced that God is only asking for this in order to ruin him. This is why Moses wants the entire cohort of Israelites to travel out of Egypt, he says. In an attempt to broker a deal with God, he only agrees to let the men leave the country. This appears to be his final offer, and he shoes Moses and Aaron away. This is not good enough for God, and he orders Moses to raise his hand once again. An east wind blows all day and all night, and by morning the beating wings of a locust swarm is upon the Egyptians. Exodus describes how the swarm is so vast that the land is black with insects. 
There has never been a larger attack, it says, and the insects eat everything still growing in the fields and all the fruit that hasn't been smashed by the hail. The destructive onslaught of millions of rampaging insects is too much for Pharaoh. Hauling the brothers back to his palace, he not only accepts that he has offended God, but that he has wronged both of them too. He begs for forgiveness and release from the plague of locusts. Again, Moses leaves the king and intercedes with God. The wind changes from east to west, carrying the locusts away towards the Red Sea. It's all a wasted effort as far as Pharaoh is concerned. However impressed the people might be at God's power, their leader's heart has been hardened and he resolutely refuses to let a single Israelite leave his country. Without asking Pharaoh to free his people, God segues into the next catastrophic event. He commands Moses to stretch out his hand to the sky yet again and this time the world becomes dark. Exodus describes a darkness that can be felt, and Egypt suffers a total blackout that lasts for three days. During this time, the nation is brought to a standstill, as no one can see to go anywhere. Only the Israelites have light in their homes. It's hard to imagine the mood of a nation that has just seen its economy ruined by hail and locusts, now covered in a seemingly endless, eerie night. Understandably, Pharaoh has a change of heart and agrees to allowing the women and children to accompany the men on their journey into the desert. All he asks is that they leave their animals behind, no doubt as security to make sure that everyone comes back. Moses insists that they need their animals with them. Some will be used as sacrifices to God and they won't know which ones until they get there. Pharaoh refuses to concede. Moses can spin any story he likes, but the king appears to know exactly what is going on here. It's a flat no from him, and he tells Moses to get out of his sight. In fact, Moses will be a dead man if he ever sees him again. This is fine with Moses, who tells the king ominously that he really will never see him again. However, God has one final ace up his sleeve, and he has assured Moses that when he deals this particular card, Pharaoh will actually chase the Israelites out of his country. Egypt has been utterly battered by plagues and meteorological catastrophes. Only Pharaoh's ego and pride are to blame, and readers have been regularly reminded that it is God who has made the king so stubborn. Exodus wants its readers to appreciate exactly the scale of God's rage when unleashed on an enemy nation. These pages and the events they contain are repeated time and again in the Bible's later books to remind their original readers of the lengths God went to rescue them from bondage in Egypt's brickyards. But all of the ravages visited on the country pale into insignificance when compared to plague number 10. Worse than locusts, hail, pestilence and darkness, God's raw fury is about to land on Pharaoh and his ruined nation. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook or send feedback to contact at holybible.com. Holy Bible.